Hillary Clinton wasn't alone as a presidential candidate in the crosshairs of Russian intelligence, and hackers aggressively target file transfer protocol servers to pilfer healthcare information. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. Hillary Clinton may not have been the only presidential candidate victimized by Russian intelligence services misinformation campaign in the 2016 election. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence on Thursday kicked off its investigation into Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election, and one of its witnesses, an expert on Russian meddling, testified that Republican primary candidates were likely targeted by Russian so-called active measures. The witness, Clint Watts, is a senior fellow at George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, and he identified one of the Republican candidates likely targeted by Moscow as one of the members of the Intelligence Committee. Russia's overt media outlets and covert trolls sought to sideline opponents on both sides of the political spectrum with adversarial views towards the Kremlin. They were in full swing during both the Republican and Democratic primary season and may have helped sink the hopes of candidates more hostile to Russian interests long before the field narrowed. Senator Rubio, in my opinion, you anecdotally suffered from these efforts. Senator Marco Rubio wouldn't comment directly to Watts's observation, but he did have something to say about Russians targeting several of his aides. In July of 2016, uh, shortly after I announced that I would seek re-election to the United States Senate, former members of my presidential campaign team uh, who had access to the internal information of my presidential campaign were targeted by IP addresses uh, with an unknown location within Russia. That effort was unsuccessful. I'd also informed the committee that within the last 24 hours, uh, at 10.45 a.m. yesterday, uh, a second attempt was made, uh, again, against former members of my presidential campaign team who had access to our internal information, again targeted from an IP address from an unknown location in Russia, and that effort was also unsuccessful. Russian mischief has continued well after the election, aiming to disrupt the current political climate in the United States. Here again is Watts. This past week, we observed social media accounts discrediting Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, hoping to further foment unrest inside U.S. Democratic institutions. A frequent term bandied about at the hearing was active measures, actions of political warfare conducted by Russia's state security services to influence the course of world events, this time the U.S. presidential election. Two major components of active measures are breaches of government, political, and business computers, as well as email accounts, and the spreading of pilfered data and other information or misinformation through social media in order to create confusion among the public and electorate. What makes these active measures successful is the willingness of those on the other side to pick up and spread the false accounts touted by the Russians. And Watts didn't mince words, accusing then-candidate Donald Trump of aiding the Russian government in spreading their false messages. Part of the reason active measures have worked in this U.S. election is because the commander-in-chief has used Russian active measures at time against his opponents. 11 October, President Trump stood on a stage and cited what appears to be a fake news story from Sputnik News that disappeared from the Internet. He denies the intel from the United States about Russia. He claimed that the election could be rigged. That was the number one theme pushed by RT, Sputnik News, white outlets, all the way up until the election. He's made claims of voter fraud. So part of the reason active measures works, and it does today in terms of Trump Tower being wiretapped, is because they parrot the same lines. 
Also testifying Thursday was Kevin Mandia. He's chief executive of the cybersecurity company FireEye. And Mandia outlined the vastness of Russia's attack machine. FireEye analysts specifically zeroed in on a group working with Russian intelligence known as APT-28. We've looked at 550 or more pieces of custom malware. A lot of people will think, well, what's that mean? We don't see this malware publicly available. It's not available to any of you to download and use tomorrow. It's being crafted by somebody in a building somewhere. It's being shared by people in a closed loop, and it's not widespread or available to anybody. We've identified over 500 domains or IP addresses used by this group when they attack. Mandia and another witness, King's College London Security Studies professor Thomas Ridd, contend that Russian espionage tactics have become more lax than they were in the run-up to the millennium. Here's Ridd. One particularly revealing slip-up resulted in a highly granular view of just one slice of GRU targeting between March 2015 and May 2016 in the lead-up to the election. That slice contained more than 19,000 malicious links targeting nearly 7,000 individuals across the world. In the past two years now, coming closer to the present, Russian intelligence operations began to combine those two things, hacking and leaking. Between June 15 and November 16, at least six different front organizations appeared, a very much Cold War style, to spread some of the stolen information to the public in a targeted way. Ridd said Russian spies set their eyes on the Clinton campaign between March 10th and April 7th of last year. GRU targeted at least 109 full-time Clinton campaign staffers. Russian intelligence targeted Clinton's senior advisor, Jake Sullivan, in at least 14 different attempts beginning on 19 March. GRU targeted even Secretary Clinton's personal email account, but the data show that she did not fall for the trick and didn't actually reveal her password. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The FBI is warning that hackers are aggressively targeting insecure file transfer protocol servers to steal medical data from healthcare organizations. ISMG security and technology editor Jeremy Kirk picks up the story. That comes as little surprise to those who've been closely watching how data thieves capitalize on configuration mistakes in databases and servers. While it'd be hard to find an IT manager who hasn't heard in passing of this problem, the scale is still enormous and not just in the U.S. New statistics show more than 750,000 FTP servers can be accessed anonymously worldwide. Those servers can be found using the Shodan search engine. The engine returns results for any internet-connected devices. It's possible to specifically search for devices and services that respond on certain ports. The Texas-based founder of Shodan, John Matherly, found close to 757,000 FTP servers that allow anonymous access. It means that anybody can connect and poke around in a stash of files. A third of the FTP servers are in the U.S. Poland is in the number two spot with almost 98,000 insecure ones, most of which were concentrated just within the IP range of one hosting provider. It begs the question whether those hosting providers are using Shodan to spot problems in their own IP ranges. That would be the most prudent way to nip issues in the bud like this. The operators of those servers would already be customers and presumably easy to contact. But hosting is a business with thin margins, and most customers may be seeking the lowest costs rather than security support. The FBI says that hackers are seeking the FTP servers to steal personal information in order to intimidate and harass business owners. 
But the agency also noted that open FTP servers are risky since they could be used to store malicious tools or used as proxies to launch other attacks. There are also much worse scenarios, such as the uploading of objectionable material on purpose. Since it's easy to use Shodan, it's probably a good idea to scan for open services in your IP range. As IT staff changes, it's easy to forget an old FTP server that was set up years ago. Better to find it before a hacker does. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. The same type of chips found in smart cards are showing up in a number of mobile and Internet of Things devices, and that's having an impact on organizations that promote the safe use of devices with embedded chips. To discuss this, I'm joined by ISMG Executive Vice President and Editorial Director Tom Field. Welcome, Tom. Eric, thanks so much. How is the expanded use of chip technology changing the way organizations assure its security? Well, Eric, the core technology that's used in smart cards is, is integrated circuit chips. And increasingly, they're being found in things that aren't tied to the card form factor. So we're talking mobile devices, wearables, and an internet-connected device. For years, the Smart Card Alliance, the industry group, helped card makers and their customers assure the security of their products. Now that these integrated chips are found in other form factors besides smart cards, the alliance has rebranded itself. It's now the Secure Technology Alliance. So I recently spoke with the alliance's executive director, Randy Vanderhoof, and he says that segueing from the Smart Card Alliance to the Secure Technology Alliance absolutely wasn't an overnight happening. As far back as five, seven years ago, as mobile devices started to implement the embedded chip technology to support NFC payments and other mobile identity applications, and we started to see other form factors of card technology showing up in smart devices that are connected to the internet, we began to cover that aspect of the business as well and expand our role as educators and building awareness about the security benefits that the technology technology brings. We've actually been practicing this broader mission for a number of years, and we've finally come to the point where we feel that we should officially recognize this and move forward because there's so many exciting new things that our organization wants to take on. I gather the change in name in part was to attract a wider range of device makers to join the alliance. Exactly right. Randy Vanderhoof says that makers of devices with embedded chips didn't see the Smart Card Alliance, obviously, as a likely partner to help promote their products and services and influence the business. As the Secure Technology Alliance, no longer limited to a form factor of a card, those same security technologies that they are embracing in their systems and services are now represented amongst the full organizational community. We can pool resources together to build best practices and white papers, webinars, workshops, conference events, and such to further promote implementing those mobile technologies in a safe and secure way by leveraging the knowledge and experience that the markets that have adopted smart cards they have already been Will smart card makers be shortchanged in an expanded secure technology alliance? Absolutely not. Randy Vanderhoof says the alliance isn't walking away from smart cards at all, just expanding its mission. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Finally, the unexpected death last week of the chief technology officer of security software vendor Trend Micro, Raymond Guinness. Guinness was a highly regarded and sought-after cybersecurity thought leader who, in the words of Trend Micro CEO Ava Chen, relentlessly sought to detect and eradicate cyber threats with deep understanding of the threat landscape. He also had a deep understanding of the IT security marketplace. Here's Guinness in a 2016 interview with ISMG's Varen Haran discussing the complexities of the IT security marketplace. 
In the security industry, we of course see more and more startups. It's it's getting scarier. It must be really hell for customers to choose and pick the right solutions because there is so much noise out there. There are so many one-trick pony companies trying to sell you a silver bullet. The question is, how long will this company be around? Ramon Guinness, dead at age 54. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.